please pray with me? Lord, we would let that lyric wash over our minds, wash over our hearts, to know that we belong to the king of the universe, that we are safe, that we have purpose, that we have the only message that can transform the human heart, that can pave a way to unhindered, unending fellowship with the living, true and living God in heaven. Oh, Lord, stir us this morning. May this time in your word be far more than academic. May it be worship. May it be transformative. May it be empowering that we would simply be about your business. And we ask this, that you would be glorified in our lives, in this church, in this city, in this country, in this world. We pray in Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords' names together, and God's adoptive children said, amen. Why do retail stores feel more secure when the armored truck comes to their premise and drives away their cash? Because the armed guards are in control of the transfer. Why do money-back guarantees on products make buyers like us more comfortable? Because the purchaser is in control of the outcome of the transaction. Why are you secure when you put the cruise control feature of your vehicle on the speed limit on the highway? Because you're confident that you are in control of your speed and you will not inadvertently break the law. Why are you and I as believers in Jesus Christ assured of what will happen to us personally and of what will happen to God's planet collectively? Because we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned on high without competition, without dilution, and without frustration. He is sovereign. And why is it that you as a follower of Jesus are not panic-struck this morning after Paris? I hope you're not panic-struck. Why is it that we cannot be panic-struck with such horrific murders? Because he's still on the throne. Because he is still in total control. That's why we are not cowering panic-struck victims this morning. This control of God, this absolute control of God in his universe from the planetary bodies he has created and hung in space in their places, this control of God that goes beyond the planetary bodies in the universe down to your heart beating. 
this morning is called sovereignty. God is our sovereign God. Dr. Charles Ryrie gives us this definition of God's sovereignty, and I quote, God is the chief being in the universe. God is supreme power in the universe. How he exercises that power is revealed in the scriptures. A sovereign could be a dictator, but God is not. Or a sovereign could abdicate the use of his powers. God has not. Ultimately, God is in complete control of all things. Although he may choose to let certain events happen according to natural laws which he has ordained. End of quote. In Psalm 115, verse 3, the psalmist sums up this truth of God's sovereignty with these words, Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That's your God. Not some puny little thing. Not some thing of your fabricated understanding. Not a good luck charm. But God. It's absolutely sovereign. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, said this. There has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. End of quote. Oh, yes. Yours is the sovereign God. I do appreciate how the same Dr. Charles Ryrie addresses some of the perceived difficulties with God's sovereignty. Again, I'll be reading from Dr. Ryrie's basic theology and quoting. The problem, the sovereignty of God seems to contradict the freedom or actual responsibility of man. But even though it may seem to do so, the perfection of sovereignty is clearly taught in the scriptures, so must not be denied because of our inability to reconcile it with freedom or responsibility. Also, if God is sovereign, how can the creation be so filled with evil? Let me make it very current. If God is sovereign, how does Paris happen? If God is sovereign. Going back to Dr. Ryrie, quote, Man was created with genuine freedom, but the exercise of that freedom in rebellion against God introduced sin into the human race. Though God was the designer of the plan, he was in no way involved in the commission of evil, either on the part of Satan originally or of Adam subsequently. 
even though God hates sin for reasons not revealed to us or God would not be sovereign in some way in which he is not the author of it or God could not be holy. Sovereignty slash freedom forms an antinomy, a contradiction between two apparently equal valid principles or between inferences correctly drawn from such principles, an antinomy. Antinomies in the Bible, however, consist only of apparent contradictions, not ultimate ones. One can accept the truths of an antinomy and live with them, accepting by faith what cannot be reconciled, or one can try to harmonize the apparent contradictions in an antinomy, which inevitably leads to overemphasizing one truth to the neglect or even the denial of the other. Sovereignty must not obliterate free will, and free will must never dilute sovereignty. End of quote. And now, after that is so well expressed, I believe, we turn to our passage, Romans 9. Romans chapter 9, and we'll begin reading at verse 6, since in a previous message I was able to preach verses 1 to 5 of Romans 9. In Romans 9, verses 6 to 29, there are five instances of God's sovereignty being worked out. Let me hasten to say that the fact that God's sovereignty is going to be shown to have been worked out in five instances in this passage tells us that God's sovereignty is not theory. It's practice. And so let's see five instances of God's sovereignty being worked out in this passage. We'll consider them one by one. Number one, God's sovereignty has been worked out in Abraham's family. We know it as Israel. God's sovereignty has been worked out in Abraham's family, also known as Israel. I see that in the first three verses of our passage, six through nine. Follow with me. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise as regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. God's sovereignty has been worked out in Abraham's family. And the way that God's sovereignty has been worked out in Abraham's family, Israel, is that natural children are not God's children. Natural children are not God's children. Please look again at verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. The illustration here in the text is Isaac versus Ishmael. If you hold your places in Romans 9 and go back to in the New Testament to Galatians, Galatians, I want to read you a couple of passages in light of what we're seeing in, in Romans 9. I want you to see in Galatians, first starting in verse 
or chapter rather, three, Galatians 3, uh, 24 to 29. Galatians 3, 24 to 29. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Staying in Galatians, turning back to chapter 6, verse 14 through 16, please. But, as me, but may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, going back to Romans chapter 9, there in Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God was referenced, the Israel of God. And the Israel of God, as portrayed in Galatians 6, equals Christian Jews who are both the physical and the spiritual seed of Abraham. The Israel of God in Galatians 6 is converted Jews, Jews who come to see Christ as Yeshua Messiah and believe on him alone for their salvation, the Israel of God equals Christian Jews who are both the physical and the spiritual seed of Abraham. And so, to recap our first point on the working out of God's sovereignty, so far we've seen in Romans 9 that God's sovereignty has been worked out in Abraham's family also known as Israel. But there's more. There's a second way that God's sovereignty works itself out as taught in this passage. Number two, God's sovereignty has been worked out with respect to the choice of God. God's sovereignty has been worked out with respect to the choice of God. I see that in verses 10 to 13 of Romans 9. Please see it with me. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hate it. God's sovereignty in these verses has been worked out with respect to the choice of God. The choice of God. Please notice that the way that God's sovereignty has been worked out with respect to the choice is both prior to birth and prior to deeds that the person born did. That is, the purpose of God and the calling of God were not predicated based 
on the person who was born's lifestyle. Verses 10 to 13 again, it bears repeating. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What happened with respect to Jacob and Esau? What happened with respect to Jacob and Esau, these twins, before they were born and before they did anything, either good or bad? God chose different paths for them. God chose different paths for them before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. And we ought not to miss a specific order in all of this working of our sovereign God here in verses 10 to 13. The divine choice was based purely on the Lord's own purpose and on the Lord's own call And so the order to see in verses 10 to 13 is this order, choice, purpose, call. Choice, purpose, call. This is the very same order if you go to Ephesians 1. Let's do that. Keep our place in Romans. Ephesians 1. A magnificent paragraph in the New Testament on the sovereignty of God as it relates to election and salvation. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, let this wash over you. You ought not have business as usual at this point. Listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to an adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to that kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth of the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That was one sentence in the original Greek. Paul just couldn't stop. The same order as we saw in 
Romans 9, verses 10 to 13, is the very same order that we just saw in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. And to review, that order is choice. Verse 4a, purpose. Verses 4b through 12. And call, that is verse 13a, all in Romans. Choice, verse 4a, chapter 9, 4a. Purpose, chapter 9, verse 4b through 12. And call, Romans 9, verse 13a. That always the same in the, in the outworking of God's sovereignty is his choice, his purpose, and his call. His choice, his purpose, and his call. And what a wonderful God. What a fully in control God. What a proactive God and not a reactive God. Paris didn't take the Lord on the throne anything by surprise. He's not scrambling in heaven trying to figure out what to do now. He's in control. He's sovereign. There's more in the passage, but let me just quickly say our first point is that God's sovereignty has been worked out in Abraham's family, also known as Israel. Secondly, God's sovereignty has been worked out in God's choice, specifically between Jacob instead of Esau. And now the third point in your outlines, God's sovereignty has been worked out with respect to his mercy. God's sovereignty has been worked out with respect to his mercy. I see that in verses um, 14 to 18 of chapter 9 of Romans. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, 18. So then, he, capital H, God, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. God's sovereignty, point three here, God's sovereignty has been worked out with respect to his mercy. Pharaoh is the illustration, that despot who kept the Jewish people in slavery, building the pyramids for a long time. And it is Exodus 33, verse 19, which is quoted here in Romans 9, verse 15. And again, Pharaoh is the illustration that God sovereignly chose not to extend mercy to Pharaoh. And... It is important to point out that Dr. Ryrie's footnote on Romans 9.15 in his study Bible, and I quote Dr. Ryrie, if God were not free to show his mercy, no one would be blessed, for no one deserves his grace, and it cannot be earned. That's a true statement. If God were not free to show his mercy, no one would be blessed, for no one deserves his grace. It cannot be earned. And so, incredible body of Christ, we're in the deep end here theologically. We're not in this kiddie's waiting pool, have you noticed? We're in the deep end here. 
But stick with it. The Spirit of God who wrote the deep end of this passage lives in you. You can understand this. So we're seeing together that God's sovereignty has been worked out with respect to God's mercy. That's three of our points. Our fourth point in the text is that God's sovereignty has been worked out with respect to his wrath and respect to his judgment. God's sovereignty has been worked out with respect to his wrath and his judgment. Look at verses 19 uh, to 22, an extended passage here, 19 to 22. We're going to see that God's sovereignty has been worked out with respect to his wrath and with respect to his judgment in these verses. Verses 19 to 22. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for his glory. We want to particularly focus on verse 21 for a minute. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? The potter has the right over the clay. The illustration, of course, here is a human potter and his pottery clay on the wheel that is turning the soft clay. And the point of this illustration is that in the face of permitted evil, God will both display wrath and power in judging the unredeemed. Now, we would like God in his sovereignty, in the face of the permitted evil of last night, to display his wrath and power in judging the unredeemed instantly. That's what we like. But I'll tell you something. God's in for the long haul. God's in for the longest possible haul. And these terrorists who think they've gotten away, the ones who didn't kill themselves with vests that detonated, these planners and schemers of evil on the planet, they're going to face the wrath and the judgment of God, although in the short run he may permit some evil that they do. Hitler, Mussolini, all the abortionists of this country and America, they're going to face the music. No, they're not going to face the music. They're going to face the ultimate sovereign composer of the music. That's who they're going to face. There'll be a time yet future in seven years when Antichrist will stir up havoc and will make any evil period of time, any epoch of time that we've seen in human history to date look like a Sunday school picnic during the tribulation. For seven years, it'll look like he cannot do anything. Uh, he cannot be stopped in anything he does. But he's going to wind up in the lake of fire forever. 
God is the longest stay possible because God is sovereign. He's got it all under control. He's got your marriage under control. He's got your parenting under control. He's got the crime in the Bahamas under control. He's got our economy under control. He's got your teenager who's walked away from Jesus Christ under control. He's sovereign. He's the boss. And the key here in these verses about God showing his sovereignty in who he chooses to have mercy on and how he holds back his wrath and judgment temporarily, God leaves people in the sin they've chosen. That's what is going on in Romans 1. I won't take time to read all the verses, although they're pivotal. In Romans 1, one of the most severe judgments and wrath of God is for him to take his hands off of an evildoer. And for God to give that person over to all the wickedness they could dream. That's how we got AIDS. God took his hands off unnatural sex and said, go ahead. That's just one example. Back to God's sovereignty. So when an unregenerate person chooses sin, God has the sovereign right to leave that person in his sin and not to pour out wrath and judgment on that, purpose, on that person in the short run. God has that right. God has that sovereign right to delay his wrath, to delay his judgment, and we have to be okay with that. Verse 20, chapter 9. Verse 20 of chapter 9. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? God the potter has made persons out of clay. And no clay has the right to audaciously say to the potter, why have you done this or that or not done this or that to me. No lump of clay has that right. And so in our passage for this morning, a difficult passage, the deep end of the theological pool, there's one more way that God's sovereignty is worked out. Fifth in your outlines, God's sovereignty has been worked out for Jews and Gentiles who will believe on Jesus Christ. God's sovereignty has been worked out for both Jews and Gentiles who will believe on Jesus Christ. Now, to see this, go to the last uh, verses of Romans 9, the passage we have at least before us, verses 23 to 29. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, 
whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, I will cause those who were not my people, my people, excuse me, I misread it, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the seashore, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us to a prosperity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. God's sovereignty has been worked out for Jews and Gentiles who believe on the Lord Jesus. And of course, generally, the illustration of this is believers, but specifically, the illustrations of this from the text are Gentile believers in Christ and two, the Jewish remnant. Gentile believers in Christ in this age and the Jewish remnant of the future Both are illustrations that God's sovereignty has been worked out for Jews and Gentiles who will believe on Jesus Christ. Next, will you please note that both of these groups, that is, the saved Gentiles and the remnant of the Jews who will believe, both of these groups are vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy. That is, saved Gentiles and saved Jews are the repositories of God's mercy. That is to say, saved Gentiles and saved Jews carry around God's mercy like a clay pot is used to carry around soup. And so we need to know this incredible body of Christ. This is what we need to know. Saved Gentiles and saved Jews are vessels that are full of God's mercy so that when we spill The mercy we have from God is what spills onto others. Is that how it is for you? When your life is jostled by an unexpected bill or the person who cuts you off in traffic or the teacher who mistreats your student academically, is that how you respond? You give out mercy. The person who owes you money in your business said they'll pay, they'll pay, they'll pay. When you get jostled by that financial crunch, is what comes out of you God's mercy? Are you a clay pot, a vessel of mercy? Yes, you are. Are you spilling mercy out onto your spouse when she lets you down and does something you don't think is right? Are you giving mercy to your husband when he does something wrong and you know isn't right? Your brother in this church, your sister in this church, you are a pot of God's mercy. You need to ladle out some of God's mercy to the person in this church who offended you that you avoid in the greeting time. Save Gentiles and save Jews are vessels which are full of God's mercy so that we will spill that mercy onto anybody that's near us. We do that spilling, you know, when we open our mouths and when we speak the gospel to lost people, we meet and know. There's an expression, you know, spill the beans. Well, here's a command from God. Spill the mercy. Spill the mercy. 
Now, will you please notice that these verses called Gentile believers in Christ, all of the following. May I remind you, before I tell you what the text calls believing Gentiles in Christ, that to the Jew, like the Apostle Paul, who was Saul as a Pharisee, the Gentiles, the goyim, were dogs. Not little fluffy wash dogs that we have in our homes. Not even the yard dogs we have to guard our houses, but the flea-infested, diseased dogs foaming at the mouth with rabies. Unpredictable. Undependable. Scavengers. The Jewish person with all the covenants of God looked at anybody who was not a Jew and says, dog. Dog. Then God, in his mercy, in his sovereign choice, and calling of even Gentiles. He says in Romans 9 that the Gentiles, God says, the Gentiles, quoting Hosea 2.23, are my people. God says in Romans 9, verse 25, that formerly people seen as dogs, the Gentiles, are my people. Still in verse 25, this wonderful sovereign God calls these Gentile believers in his son, beloved. Verse 25. Still in this passage, in verse 26, this gracious, merciful, sovereign God calls Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus Christ, watch it, sons of the living God. Sons, that's what you are. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you're God's people, you're beloved of God, and you are sons of the living God. Quite a step up from dog. Now the Jews in the New Testament time saw this, and they saw it as a miracle that Gentiles could know God, but guess what? We should still see it as no less of a miracle that God calls us Gentiles who believe in his son and adopted us into his family and grafted us into the olive tree called Jews. It's a miracle. If you have time to look at Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, read that to each other at home this afternoon. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, it's a miracle. Next, will you please notice that the Jews who believe in Jesus are called the remnant. My wife is a good sower. She has saved our family lots of money, sewing clothes, repairing clothes, making drapes, all different things that Beth has done because she knows how to use a sewing machine. And one of the things I quickly learned being married to Beth is I would go into fabric stores with her. I never did that when I was single, I must admit. But uh, I went into fabric stores with Beth, and she would find bolts of clothes, fabric, that she wanted to use that were not quite off-the-roll finished, but there was a remnant. There was some of the fabric still on the bolt, probably not enough of it to do a big project, but if you had a small enough project, you could buy the remnant of that bolt of fabric for a good price. That's a remnant. A remnant is a fabric off a larger piece of a bolt of fabric. It's like an off-cut of lumber, man. When we go to the lumber store and they cut off the off-cut, you might be able to use an off-cut and buy it more cheaply than the whole board. God likens those Jews who will come to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation to the remnant. The very useful minority. The part that is preserved and put into service for the Savior. 
The believing Jews, God calls a remnant. And then if you take time, and I hope you will, to go to Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, God predicts in detail that there'll be a future mass conversion to Jesus Christ, Messiah, by Jewish people in the seven years of tribulation. Most of them will die a martyr's death for doing so. But that's the remnant we're talking about. Believing Jews in this age and in the tribulation, the remnant. (laughs) Isn't God wonderful? Isn't sovereign and wonderful? And so today in Romans 9, 6 to 29, in the deep end of the pool, we've seen a case made for the outworking of God's sovereignty. And number one, he is sovereign in Abraham's family and the nation of Israel. Number two, he's sovereign with respect to his choice, his purposes, and his calling. He's sovereign with respect to his mercy. He's sovereign with respect to his wrath and his judgment. And he is sovereign for both Jews and Gentiles who will believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. And so, with the writer of Romans, we say, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Many years ago, there were two brothers who both had a bent with art. They were from a poor family, so they knew that both could not afford the tuition of a very renowned art school. So they decided, they planned, that one of them would enroll in full-time credit hours at the art school while the other earned a living and made money and used the money to pay for the first brother's art school. The first brother was exceptionally gifted and was recognized before he graduated from the art school as being a very saleable artist, a sculptor. And... When it was time for him to graduate, he'd already sold pieces of sculpture for good money before he even graduated. And so he turned to his other brother, who had been working in the mines, hard manual labored, digging in a mine, and said, now I can afford to put you through art school. There was one problem. The brother who worked in the mines had broken almost every bone in each of his fingers, And arthritis had set into his joints so badly that he couldn't even hold a paintbrush. He couldn't hold a sculptor's knife. He was crippled. And so, the brother who went to art school sculpted the brother's hands that were so gnarled and limited due to loving, sacrificial work. And we have... Durer's most famous sculpture, Praying Hands. The hands of his brother, who labored in the mine to earn the money to put the other brother through art school. We have a God who is sculpting us, sculpting us as redeemed children to resemble the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. 
God's control in all of this sculpting is comprehensive. God's controlling of the sculpture of your life believer is comprehensive. Worship him for being a sovereign God. Trust him for being a sovereign God. Pray to him because he's a sovereign God. Serve him because he is a sovereign God. Sovereign God, we thank and praise you for the work that you have done in redemption, the work you have done in calling us before we were ever born to know you, to make you known, to be forgiven by you. Forgive us, Lord, when we dare to question you as clay. Help us to understand that your skilled and powerful hands and all-knowing hands make no mistakes. Make no mistakes in what CNN reports, makes no mistakes in what NB12 reports, makes no mistakes in our lives, and makes no mistake in our loved ones' lives either. Thank you, Lord, that we belong to you. We want to worship you for who you are, sovereign king. Amen.